This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome everyone to the Planet Microcap Showcase Virtual. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and I'm very excited to bring to you the Stock Pitch World Cup. The next team here that's going to be doing a presentation is on behalf of Team Europe and moderating for Team Europe, uh, my good friend and colleague in the microcap space, uh, Jason Hirschman, managing partner at Hudson 215 Capital. Jason? Thank you for doing this. And, you know, maybe a quick introduction on who you are, as well as, you know, why you've been interested in Europe. Sure, sure. You know, I'm an American investor. Uh, I run a family uh, family office, Hudson 215 Capital. Uh, but I find there's a lot of opportunities, particularly in the microcap space, uh, among European companies. You get uh, a lot of times better management, uh, better businesses, at a better price. It's a fantastic combination, right? So uh, I'm ready to go. There we go. All right. Well, with that, let's get started. Uh, we have three uh, investors that are about to give uh, pitches for uh, on companies listed on European exchanges. So um, without any further ado, enjoy the show. Okay. Our first pitch today is by Herman Petersek with Hypernormal Capital Partners. Herman, take it away. Thanks, Jason. Yeah. as uh, My name is Herman Petersek. I am with Hypernormal Capital, and I'll be talking about 11-bit studios today. And for disclosure, I am a current shareholder of the company. So quick agenda overview. I'll introduce myself briefly, talk about the investment idea, and then we'll have a brief Q&A. My name's Herman. Um, I was in the games industry before starting a fund for about 20 to 25 years, starting in uh, when they sold games in stores. I, was, I worked at a game store, and I worked in journalism for a while, making CDs and covering game companies like Blizzard here back in the, in the late 90s. And then eventually I got into game development. I worked on three games, the first two you probably haven't heard of. The last one is League of Legends, which you may have heard of. And so that explains my interest in uh, looking at game companies as investments. So 11-bit, quick facts about the company. It's about a 270 million market cap. They're a developer and a publisher. That means they build games in-house with teams that they have, as well as working with other companies that build games and they publish them, usually taking some percentage of the, of the total costs in exchange for doing marketing and things like that. So that's how their business works. Um, really the core, when I look at a company like this, of this size, a smaller game developer, really trying to think about, can it get to about 10 times the size? So can the market cap get from 250 to 300 to a few billion or more over say a 10 year period? Um, and how can that happen? So looking at a little bit at some details, uh, in 2021, they had about 18 million in revenue and 11 million in operating cash flow. And so to get to that, uh, 10x, you'd want to see the revenue and the operating cash flow also go up about that much while keeping multiples roughly the same. Um, the way that I think about it in the case of 11-bit is they really have three things that are driving their engine. The first thing is uh, they're not like most game companies. Um, they're trying to find um, and build games that resonate with people for different reasons. Uh, they have games where, for example, this War of Mine, you play a survivor of a war as opposed to a soldier fighting. So they make these differentiated games. They 
return the money they make from the games into increasing the production value. And they try to focus on longevity. So their games have four, five, six, sometimes 10 years of gameplay as opposed to a few quarters where they make most of their money and then move on. Then the idea is they turn the crank. So that's what they are, where they are right now. They're trying to increase the number of products, which increases the audience size. And through higher production value, you can get more price. You're, you can actually sell each unit for more money. So the bottom chart kind of shows what that would look like. Uh, just sort of looking at some data real quick. This is um, from a from Steam. So Steam is the big PC gaming store, and the green uh, the green line is really the number of players over time. So you see games like Call of Duty, they get a huge spike and then it drops off. Whereas up in the top right is this War of Mine, which is an 11 bit game. You see all these spikes in between. So they're trying to keep engagement high over a seven year period. You can see the engagement of players staying roughly the same, which allows them to put out new updates and build a larger audience and so on. So it's a different way they're thinking about it. That's the longevity part. Uh, this is a slide from their investor presentation. You can see how deeply this is baked into the company. They actually track very carefully, um, you know, in year four, what is the revenue distribution of the game? And they'd like to see it more evenly over a longer period of time, which is unusual for a game company to be focused on this. And they really think about their, um, their product strategy this way. The second part is, you know, can you increase prices and increase the audience size at the same time? So on the left are their internally developed games, on the right are some of their published games. And you can see as the dates go 2017, 18, 19, and over in a development 13, 14, 18, uh, the number of reviews is anecdotally related to the number of sales. And you can see the numbers are going up and the prices of their products are going up and that shows up in revenue going up. So that that seems to be working. There's precedent here, uh, company CD Project, which people may have heard of, they make The Witcher. And so they were very similar to 11-bit's trajectory. They made The Witcher, then they made The Witcher 2, then they made The Witcher 3. And you can see the reviews are going up over time. It, here, an order of magnitude, The Witcher 3 was a huge hit. It spawned a Netflix series and so on. And Cyberpunk, of course, is also huge. And so um, CD Project is a great uh representation of where I think 11-bit could go if they can hit the inflection points uh, that um, CD Projekt hit. Um, how this translates into revenue. So these charts go from right to left. Everything else goes from left to right, but that's how it is. You can see what's going on here underneath is, you know, The Witcher comes out and they make, you know, a few million. And then The Witcher 2 comes out and they're they, plat they get to this new level that they kind of sustain. They never go back to the pre-Witcher 2 level. Then the Witcher 3 comes out and they get up to about 200 million, come back down, and now Cyberpunk came out. We'll see what the future looks like. And you can see that 11-bits revenue looks similar. So this is that theory of the games layer on top of each other playing out through the revenue scenario. And so right now, 11-bits at around 20 million of revenue. And you know that's where, um, that's where CD Projekt was before the Witcher 3. So if they can continue to either have many games that are successful, which they plan to do, or if they have a huge hit, they can go up to these next tiers. And that's what I hope to see over the next 10 years, that they can get from this 20 million up to the 200 million range. One thing we have to be careful of uh, as this journey occurs is game companies are very cyclical with their earnings. So they huge huge spikes, and that tends to drive multiples really high. So you can see with CD Projekt, The Witcher 3 comes out, their multiples go high. Then they start announcing Cyberpunk, and their multiples are getting really crazy, 50, 60 times sales. Um, and 11-bit, we see similar kind of things. This War of Mine and Frostpunk all, both saw huge spikes in price to sales, followed by drops as you know the revenue inevitably um, comes down a little bit. 
with Cyberpunk on, with CD Projekt, that could that was fairly disastrous for investors. If they bought into the hype here, 2020, they experienced huge capital loss as the multiples came back down. Um, when the hype, you know, Keanu Reeves going to be in it. They had these amazing trailers. They had deals with Netflix, and then suddenly, oh my God, you have technical problems. Your studio's culture might be hurt. So it really, it really came down to about price sales of 10. I think it's back to 17 now. So you got to be careful of that. Don't want to buy too high. Just looking at the product slate, how do we get to this sort of layered um, uh, outcome? In 20, 2023, they're going to release Frostpunk 2, which is a, a product game they're producing in-house sequel to their most successful game, um, along with a mobile game that NetEase is doing, which is you know going through its motions with China. Uh, and then they're publishing a game called The Invincible, which is a narrative adventure. Those are the big things investors should be looking at for the next year. Beyond that, they've got a bunch of projects. They've got The Alters and Project 8, which is an internal game uh, that they've been talking about for a while. And then these three games they're publishing during that time period. And then the management has said by 2025, they want to have three published games a year. And my hope is that this gets them from, you know, the 20 million revenue a year range to maybe 40, 50, 60 million as they ramp this up. And then going beyond that, we don't really know what they're going to be making other than they want to have three production teams and continue expanding their publishing both in terms of quantity and quality and therefore price as they go and they've taken uh minor ownership in companies like fool's theory and um starward to which you know they're also publishing their games so that's another possible source of revenue for them uh quick summary here so if you look um 11 bits actually grown a lot since they ipo'd i think they're about 10 times up already. So if you bought it after this War of Mine release, you did you did well. You were smarter than I was. Um, and I, But I think they can continue this, this plateauing for quite some time. Uh, the multiples are not cheap. So this outcome does assume that pr things go pretty well for them there. Frostpunk 2 is successful. The Invincible is successful. Uh, if they have poor product reviews or delays, that could be a problem. If they publish too many games and their scores suffer, that could be a problem. Uh, if we see this longevity thing start to not work so well, so we'd want to look at how much of their revenue is coming from the old games versus the new games. Uh, they could fall in the trap of acquiring, making bad acquisitions, or maybe ramping up headcount. These are all the things that I'm looking at to make sure that the thesis holds. Um, and that's sort of the end of my presentation. Uh, thank you, Herman. I think that was a really great presentation and really was a thorough introduction to 11-Bit uh, Studios. Uh, and before I just start off with a couple of questions, I want to mention that I'm also a shareholder in 11-Bit Studios. Uh, my, my first question actually is 11-Bit uh, announced uh, just a few days ago uh, that it spent about 65% more in the first three quarters of 2022 than 2021 on game, game development. Uh, is this part of the uh, normal cycle? And how should we think about these cycles of of revenue and, and, and investment um, for a game company? Uh, yes, I. So, um, yeah, it is normal. Uh, they're ramping up a few teams, uh, especially their Project Eight team. So I wasn't super surprised to see that, but it is something we want to watch for. And so what happens is, you know, their costs go up sometimes years before the revenue comes off from the games that are then released. So 65 is, I think, uh, is is okay. 
Um, and I would expect that as they ramp production, we could see things like that. If it starts to get too big, um, then you could potentially get into trouble. So what I would look for, for example, one of the one of the problems I think CD Projekt got into is they started to hype their games a lot. And they started to target release dates and things like that, you know, and running these huge trailers and talking about Keanu Reeves. So if you take the focus off the development, that would make me much more nervous than if they just are ramping their development costs. Um, I like to see development costs um, ramping in the case of 11-bit. Uh, another question is you know, how I, I think you mentioned that Frostpunk uh, 2 is, 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 I think, planned to come out sometime in 2023. Yeah. How do investors measure whether a new release, say Frostpunk 2, is, is successful or unsuccessful uh, among gamers you know, relatively early on in its life cycle? Um, so uh, there, the, for me, I, I play it. And I go to, you know, I talk to other people that play it. I look at the Steam comment boards. Um, if they release things early, like if they have kind of beta testing and stuff, you can go, if they have, they, they, often there's community boards with these companies and you can go look at their community and see what they're saying. Twitter is a good resource for this. You know, type in Frostpunk 2 in Twitter and you'll see very quickly because what happens early is the hardcore players are going to get in early. And if they don't like something, they can really hurt the virality of it. Um, you know, because they're going to tell all their buddies, hey, check out this game. It's incredible. Or they're going to say Frostpunk 2 sucks, 11-bit blew it. Um, that's a little bit what happened with Cyberpunk. Like the early players were very negative and it really, um, it, it hurt them. And they had to do a lot of work to come back from that. So that's the main thing I look for is like, play the game yourself. Look at the, what the core players are saying early. Unfortunately, then it might almost be too late, you know? So that's the, that's the trick with video games is you, it's a little bit of an act of faith that the company is going to make something good. Uh, now, 11-bit, I think you mentioned uh, they made an equity investment in Fool's Theory, I think about 40%. Uh, right. Star, Star Wars Industries, I think about 5%. Uh, so now they have these equity investments and also publishing agreements. Do you happen to know uh, some of the economics around some of these publishing agreements? And uh, what gives you confidence that management is doing the, the right thing when they make these equity investments? It's a great question, um, and I've asked a couple uh, from a different companies, and they, they, they won't disclose the publishing agreements usually with individual um, studios because, of course, that's a negotiation that they do with different companies. Um, so you can usually look at, I mean, if they're making really bad publishing deals, in the case of 11-bit, like their, their revenue from publishing is now uh, you know, 35, 40% or something. So if they were making bad deals, then their operating margins would be worse as they publish more. And that's not happening. So I'm assuming they're getting pretty good terms. The The thing I worry more about is the selection, the selectivity of it. I think, um, you know, so some, in the case of a company like 11bit, they might look at literally hundreds and hundreds of games and publish one or two. And that's kind of what you want to see. And, you know, in the case of both uh, Fool's Theory and Star Wars, um, you know, they took an equity and they're the publisher, which is, of course, nice. It's almost like paying yourself. And I, th I don't know about Fool's Theory, but and I'm, I don't know exactly of the terms, but I feel like in, in the case of Star Wars, they were trying to help give the company more money to have more time to finish their game well, which I see very positively. You know, like they didn't want to rush the game out the door. They wanted to invest in the company and make sure the game was great so that they benefit as a publisher as well. So that's sort of my non-answer. 
Now that was, it was a good answer. I, I think uh, Herman, we're running out of time here. I really appreciate you sharing your your presentation on eleven bit. Uh, if investors want to reach out to you, uh, how do they do it? Or if, if they just simply somebody simply wants a game uh, recommendation, and how do they reach out to you? The best way to reach me reach out to me is on Twitter, uh, and my sign is Peters H K P E T E R S H K. That's probably the best way you can find everything else from there. Fantastic. Great. Thank you again. Next up is Luke Walgram, who will be, will be presenting Auto Partner. Luke, take it away. Thanks. I'm presenting today Auto Partner. The stock trades on the Warsaw Stock Exchange under the symbol APR. And for disclosure purposes, I do own a position in Auto Partner. I estimate 25 to 60% two year IRRs. AutoPartner is a high-quality, low-cost distributor of aftermarket and spare auto parts across Poland and Europe. The company is Poland's second-largest auto parts distributor, with revenue split approximately 50-50 between domestic Polish revenue and exports to Western Europe. AutoPartner has grown revenue at nearly a 20% compound annual growth rate and net income at a 40% CAGR over the last five years. AutoPartner has over 100 branch offices and three warehouses in Poland and one warehouse in the Czech Republic. AutoPartner sources parts from over 350 different suppliers, with the top 10 suppliers accounting for around 40% of AutoPartner's total merchandise. AutoPartner mainly sources parts from European, Japanese, and Korean automobile OEM suppliers. AutoPartner also has their own private label brand known as MaxGear that has over 35,000 individual parts. MaxGear products are accretive to margins, and the brand has been growing quickly, now accounting for over 20% of revenue. AutoPartner's domestic business operates somewhat differently than its international export business. In Poland, AutoPartner sources parts from suppliers and moves them to one of AutoPartner's main warehouses. From there, parts make their way to branch offices on an as-needed basis. Local mechanics can then go pick up parts from the branch office or have the parts delivered, sometimes multiple times per day. The export business is slightly different. Rather than distributing to branch offices, AutoPartner instead exports to middlemen auto parts retail sh shops who then take the responsibility of delivering to mechanics. The export business is lower gross margin, but higher operating margin. Now, let's talk about the size of the market. The domestic Polish auto parts market is around 9 billion PLN, or about 2 billion USD. That means AutoPartner has around a 10 to 15% domestic market share. In Western Europe, the auto parts market is massive at around 200 billion USD, or 900 billion PLN. That means AutoPartner has less than 0.5% market share in Western Europe. AutoPartner's international revenue has grown rapidly over the last few years and will likely exceed domestic revenue within a few quarters. AutoPartner faces three main competitors inside Poland, Intercars, Interteam, and HM Gordon. 
Intercars is Poland's largest auto parts distributor with around 30% market share and is probably auto partners' most formidable competitor. Of course, as I already mentioned, auto partner is second with 10 to 15% market share. Interteam, which was purchased in 2018 by LKQ Corp and HM Gordon are the next two largest competitors in Poland with around 16 to 20% combined market share. The remaining 35 to 40% of domestic Polish market share is held by smaller subscale competitors, leaving opportunity for the more scaled players to outcompete or make acquisitions. Auto Partners export business has many competitors, perhaps a few too many to get into in this presentation. How then does Auto Partner compete? I believe Auto Partner has significant sustainable competitive advantages that make up a strong moat. First, Auto Partner has a durable business. Automobiles will still be around in 5, 10, or 20 years, and they will still need parts to repair, including electric vehicles. Second, the auto parts distribution business has high barriers to new entrants as it is a scale-based business. Greater scale allows you to get better discounts from suppliers for greater volumes of merchandise, which allows AutoPartner to offer a greater customer value proposition than subscale competitors. Third, AutoPartner has made significant investments in technology across the business, from software to run warehouse and transportation logistics, to technology that lowers the friction for customers to order parts. Finally, Auto Partner has taken a disciplined approach to operations, ensuring that expansion efforts become profitable and quite simply outmanaging competitors. Auto Partner's competitive advantages allow the company to offer customers a strong value proposition. The three main components that make up Auto Partner's value proposition to customers are a large selection of parts, fast delivery, and competitive pricing. Often, auto parts distributors, including Auto Partner at times, are only able to deliver on two of these three components. For example, it may cost more to deliver a part faster, especially for Auto Partner's international export business. Scale allows distributors to better balance these three things. Now for the part I'm sure you're waiting for, valuation. As of the time of recording, Auto Partners' stock price is around 13 PLN. The company's trailing 12 months PE is 8.7, and the stock trades at an enterprise value of just six times EBITDA. Historically, this has been a low to mid-teens PE multiple business. I believe investors are getting an opportunity here to buy a great business at a great price. Of course, trailing multiples only tell you so much. As such, I've modeled simple bear, base, and bull cases. As AutoPartner has already reported three quarters in 2022, I'm quite confident in my 2022 estimate. Let's take a look at my assumptions for 2023 and 2024. My bear case assumes a deceleration to 15% revenue growth and a return to pre-COVID margins, resulting in a slight decline in earnings. COVID has had some benefit to AutoPartner, 
as a lack of supply of parts has allowed AutoPartner to maintain higher prices. Nonetheless, margins have been growing since well before COVID, and some of this, this increase has come from increased scale and efficiency that should be retained going forward. My base case assumes 20% revenue growth, with margins slightly below recent levels. Finally, my bull case assumes 25% revenue growth, along with further improvements in margins. I have modeled at the bottom there what I think are quite conservative multiples. In my bear case multiple of nine times EPS, roughly the multiple the stock trades at today, I get a negative 15% to 0% IRR. At 10 times my base case EPS estimate, I get 26 to 30% rates of return. Finally, my bull case assumes a multiple of 10 to 12, with roughly 60 to 70% IRRs. In case I haven't yet convinced you that this is a high quality business, allow me to show you the company's return ratios. As you can see, returns on capital have averaged 17.5% from 2017 to 2021. Returns on equity have averaged 22.6%. And over the last few years, these metrics have been increasing as the business grows. This is a business that is getting better with scale. Returns on incremental capital are increasing with growth. That is both rare and incredible. Now, we all love to see cash flow go up and to the right. Unfortunately, that's not quite the case with AutoPartner. In fact, AutoPartner's cash flow metrics are quite messy. Investments in working capital and the construction of major assets like new warehouses and branch offices impact the timing of cash flows relative to earnings. This makes AutoPartner's cash flow difficult to forecast, but that is perhaps an opportunity. AutoPartner is reinvesting money generated by the business back into the business, i.e. growth capex, and they're doing it at high incremental returns on capital. Ultimately, this should pay off for investors. Finally, there are a few risks worth mentioning. First, as I've already discussed, competition. Intercars is ahead domestically in terms of scale, but AutoPartner is catching up and I believe has better technology and operations. AutoPartner can compete on price with Western European competitors, but not always on delivery times. It takes time to ship parts from Poland to, say, Spain. Electrification is another risk. Electric vehicles require less maintenance and fewer repairs overall, and thus fewer parts for AutoPartner to distribute. This also requires building new relationships with EV suppliers. And Poland itself can be viewed as a risk by many. Poland shares a border with Russian-allied Belarus, as well as Ukraine. It is perhaps a little too close to the Ukraine-Russia conflict for some investors. Poland tends to experience higher inflation than most Western countries. Inflation over the last 20 years in Poland has been stable at around 5%, but has recently exceeded 15%. The Polish central bank rate currently sits at 6.75%. There is also currency risk here. The Zloty has lost approximately 30% of its value relative to the US dollar 
over the last five years. Then again, the euro hasn't done much better. I'll end it with this. Auto Partner is a high-quality business, as proven by its high returns on capital. Auto Partner has sustainable and durable competitive advantages. Auto Partner's current market share leaves significant growth for many years of compounding. And finally, the stock is just cheap. That's my presentation, and I'll open it to questions. Okay, uh, Luke, I really want to thank you for presenting Auto Partner today. And uh, um, before I uh, ask a couple questions, I want to mention that I'm also a uh, shareholder in Auto Partner. But let me start off with just a uh, you know one question about the the growth in the non-Polish revenue, because I think in 2017 it was 75% Polish. 25% you know, non-Polish revenue, and now it's about a 50-50 split. Uh, does Auto Partner, or, or in your opinion, do you see that that non-Polish revenue like continuing to grow and becoming you know, a very substantial majority of their business over time? I would think so. They're, they have less than 0.5% market share internationally. So uh, I think there's a lot of room for growth. And if they could even get, say, 2%, that's four times bigger than what they are today. So yeah, that's like, I would say that's their most significant opportunity going forward. Yeah. How, how are they, uh, because it seems like in the domestic Polish market, they can really also not, not only offer lower prices, but also you know, superior service, let's say, than, than some competitors, particularly smaller competitors, uh, because they have like multiple locations, they can, service a customer sometimes even multiple times a day. They can't necessarily do that in their in these export markets. Uh, do you have any sense of which export markets they're showing some more success in? Or have they broken that information out? They have not. So I would guess like Germany is a big one, but it's just right. a guess. They have not just guessed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it looks like maybe more of the, uh, the export markets are competing a little bit more on, on price. I guess than than to say they're, they're in the uh, in the domestic Polish market. It seems like, yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, it's just you know, turning gears to say to the uh, to the Max Gear their their own brand, which is about I think twenty percent of their revenue now. Could you maybe go into a little bit more detail about the advantages of of Max Gear and how it compares to like branded products they may offer? Sure. So. Max Gear, because it's private label, is higher margin for Auto Partner. So right. that's the main advantage. That's the main, mainly why they uh, are trying to grow it and push that over maybe other suppliers. Uh, how does it? How does it? In terms of the value proposition for the uh, for the customer, do we have a sense of like how much cheaper it is for you know like for like park and how how does the the quality match up to some branded products? That I'm not sure. Uh, I've never gotten got in my hands on the parts. I've never seen them, so it's hard to say. Sure, sure. Uh, I would imagine it's at least competitive with most parts, uh, right. and that's probably right. evidenced by the growth. Um, so yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think one of the the sort of interesting aspects of of Poland and some other Eastern European markets is that they actually uh, import some sort of 
older cars uh, that from 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 Western Europe. In fact, according to uh, BNN, that's Baltic News Network, not BNN in Canada. Uh, about half the the uh, cars imported into Eastern Europe are in somewhat damaged state. So I would think that that may offer sort of an interesting opportunity for for players like Auto Partner uh, to to service not that indirectly, but sell sell parts for these damaged cars. Could you talk a little bit more about the the dynamics of the maybe of the Polish uh, 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 sort of car market and whether people do the repairs themselves or with the 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 service mechanics? Anything you could share on that? Yeah. So in Poland, a lot of people will go to mechanics to get their car repaired. About ninety percent of people will go to a mechanic, as opposed to say in the U.S., where about half the people do repairs themselves. So the market in Poland is almost entirely mechanics. And since Auto Partner sells to those mechanics, uh, they can capture a huge part of the total auto parts market, as opposed to some more Western countries where there's more do-it-yourself. And there's several reasons for that. Uh, The main one, I think, is there's just less space in Europe. And so people don't have like driveways to go out and fix their cars or lifts or shops. So they just pretty much have to go to a mechanic a lot of the time. Um, yeah. Okay. And I got one more, one more question for you, uh, for Luke. Uh, if you had to, 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 to guess, uh, obviously auto partner wants to t- continue to take market share from other competitors in uh, in Poland, uh, do you think they continue to take share from from the smaller players, or what do you think are their opportunities to take share from the the number one or, or number three, number four? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Intercars, which is the number one player, I think is the toughest competitor. So I don't see them taking market share from Intercars. In fact, I see Intercars and Auto Partner taking market share from smaller competitors, maybe the two HM Gordon and Interteam, but I would imagine mostly from smaller subscale competitors that just, they just can't compete because they don't have the scale. And I would imagine over time, this is a business that the top three, four five players probably end up as taking 80, 90% of the market. Excellent. And, and Luke, I think that's all the time we have for questions today. If people want to reach out to you directly, uh, what's the best way about doing that? Best way to reach out to me would definitely be Twitter. Just follow me at Luke Walgram on Twitter and send me a DM. My DMs are open and I'm happy to discuss Auto Partner or any other company. Great. Well, thank you, Luke. Really appreciate it. Next up is Rukan Dougal with Chandurn Investment Partnership. Rukan, take it away. Uh, thanks, Jason. Um, so I'm going to be talking about Last Minute. Uh, I am a shareholder of Last Minute. And with that, let's get started. Uh, next slide. Regular legal disclaimer. Uh, next slide. Uh, so uh, Last Minute is an online travel agent, uh, a European online travel agent, an OTA. Um, so in addition to all the Europe fears that uh, I, I'm, I'm sure uh, the rest of the presentations have highlighted, 
and with discretion, the discretionary travel concerns, um, the Swiss uh, government is uh, accusing last minute of bilking it for about 29 million in, in COVID benefits. Uh, but while all of this is going on, uh, the, the company's business is changing and its value is increasing. Um, in this presentation, I'm going to give you a quick overview of, of the industry. I'm going to give you a, a, an overview of the company. And we're going to talk about sort of some of the elements of the business that are changing. Uh, next slide. So um, the travel reservations industry um, in Europe is complex. Um, right at the very top, you know, what's great about Europe and Europe is where you want to be. The geography in Europe is, is fragmented. Uh, what that means is that, uh, you know, if you are a middleman and you can bring buyers and sellers together in a fragmented market, you can charge uh, sort of higher commissions. Um, so that certainly sets up well. Uh, when a company wants to kind of enter the industry, the way they do it is they will, um, uh, you know, they will pick a product uh, like flights or like hotels, uh, vacation rentals and the like. And then they'll pick a mechanism of distribution. Um, they'll either sell to online uh, customers, um, they will uh, sell to other businesses, or they will sell uh, via uh, travel agents. And depending on uh, the mix, the product and the distribution, um, the, the business models look very different. Uh, where you uh, spend capital is very different. Uh, what scale means in your business is, is very different. Uh, last minute specifically, just within the context of this map, uh, their products are flights and packages and they sell those products online uh, to the customer via website uh, and, and mobile app. And they also sell uh, packages to other businesses. Uh, next slide. So, um, you know, the company is changing. Um, the two products we talked about, the flight product and the package products, they have very different revenue economics. Uh, the flight product the average flight product uh, sort of retails for 400 euros. The average package product retails for around 2,000 euros. Um, and, uh, you know, the spread or the commission that last minute keeps on both products is the same. So, you know, it goes to figure that if you sell one dynamic package from a revenue perspective, it's equivalent to sort of five flights. Uh, and once you've got sort of additional revenue coming in and dynamic packages are, are clearly sort of um, the better way to go. And just to take a step back, a dynamic package is nothing more than a flight plus a hotel uh, stitched together and sold to you as a package. That's what a dynamic package is. Uh, but once you've got uh, sort of this queue with more dynamic packages being sold, you kind of want to maximize um, sort of uh, unit economics. And the way you do that is, you try and minimize the amount you pay out to Google and the amount you pay out to sort of meta search uh, providers. And, and if you look at sort of the company's numbers um, on a relative basis, looking at sort of the first half of 2019 before COVID and the first half of 2022, uh, you'll notice three things specifically. The first is uh, you'll notice that the, the flights business is a little bit weak, um, it's, you know, on a relative basis down about 16 million. But the dynamic holiday package business has made up all of that. 
you'll also notice that most of the profitability in terms of contribution margin is coming from dynamic packages. And the third thing you'll notice is that a lot of the traffic for dynamic packages is coming more from other businesses uh, through a B2B channel, other businesses like Booking. And we'll go through that in a little bit more detail. Um, next slide. So let's talk about kind of the businesses that OTAs uh, in general and OTAs like Life, uh, Last Minute are really in. Um, they're in the upsell business. And the way they do it is that they will buy a cheap, uh, they will advertise cheap flights on Google and on Metasearch for both uh, flights products and for, uh, for flight products. Um, in either case, because, you know, a customer is not going to recognize uh, sort of a, a holiday package in, in, in Google advertising. They'll always recognize kind of the, the cheap flight. And then once you get that customer in, uh, if you're selling flight product, you want to upsell that customer uh, with other products like insurance and, and web check-in and, and the like. And that's where um, you kind of make most of your money because the flight product itself, just the ticket itself is, is largely kind of just marginalized. Uh, you're much better off if you can advertise uh, a flight product, again, Google Meta Search. And then once you get the customer in, you can upsell them the package, the flight and hotel, uh, where you know, you're charging sort of you know, uh, four to five times as much and you have sort of the same commission rate. Um, the other thing that's kind of positive about the dynamic package business is that you can also receive traffic from, you know, B2B partners like Booking. And there's other uh, partners who largely just white label last minute um, on their site. So what this means is if you go to the Booking site in, say, Spain or in France or in, in the UK, you'll see a flights tab and you'll see, um, you know, a flights plus hotel tab. And when you click on that tab and you run a search and the like, you're actually going, you know, the back end is all being fulfilled by, by last minute. And, you know, when you receive traffic from B2B partners like Booking, uh, it's a revenue share agreement. They get, they get a piece of the revenue, but, uh, you know, your benefit there is that you're not paying Google and you're not paying MetaSearch for, for sort of traffic. Um, so the economics largely uh, kind of work out. Um, the the one other um, sort of element of packages that's very important is that uh, there's just fewer competitors in the space. Um, and the reason for that is that um, to get packages implemented uh, in each of the 44 European countries um, that are out there, um, the, each country has a different regulatory regime. Uh, and packages specifically have regulatory oversight. Simple flights do not, simple hotels do not, packages do. Uh, in addition, uh, the tech stack for every country is also different. The tech stack you'll have for Spain is going to look structurally different than tech stack for Italy. And finally, with dynamic packages, you can also get sort of additional traffic in from you know, other companies like Booking, and that provides you another runway, for, uh, runway of growth. Uh, next slide. So, you know, when you're selling a product and there's multiple parties involved, you kind of always want to ask what's in it for all of the different parties? Why is this product going to fly? Why is this distribution channel going to fly? 
for the hoteliers who are uh, providing last minute with inventory, um, a couple of things make sort of the, the last minute dynamic package product very attractive. The first is the hotelier knows that if you get a customer and they book both a flight and hotel rooms together, the cancellation rates are just much lower. Uh, the customer is committed just because they've, you know, ponied up money for a flight as well. Um, booking when, you know, you reserve via booking, their cancellation policies are such that you know, if, if you cancel a, a, a reservation you've made via booking at the last minute, um, you know, it, it sets up a difficult situation for the hotelier because they're now sitting on rooms, which are kind of, you know, pure marginal revenue if they can sell them. Um, so what they want to do is any inventory that's kind of left over or when they do inventory management, they want to make sure a certain amount of that inventory kind of makes it into kind of the last minute type channel so that, that those rooms get sold. And the other thing with packages is that, you know, these hoteliers, they don't have to disclose pricing um, because their pricing is embedded in the bundle. Um, so they can discount without kind of affecting the brand or without anyone kind of doing a hotel meta search and realizing that, you know, um, you know, one hotel rooms uh, selling for a lot cheaper than the other. Last minute, more importantly, I mean, they get a ton of inventory um, and their inventory is exclusive to them um, because they're getting, um, you know, privileged inventory at better pricing. And the exclusivity gives them uh, sort of, you know, a margin benefit. What I mean by that is that, you know, when someone, um, you know, books a package through last minute, last minute will use its systems to push their inventory because they know the best deals are sitting with their inventory. And roughly 45% of every booking uh, on last minute, every package booking uh, is composed of a special deal that last minute has with a hotelier. Um, We'll skip white label partners for now because, I mean, that's a very simple revenue share. There's more upside. But the booking uh, relationship is certainly interesting. What booking is doing in Europe is that every time Expedia uh, makes inroads in a certain area, uh, booking wants to match it. It's effectively uh, a tit-for-tat uh, competitive dynamic. What Expedia does, booking will match. Uh, they did this with bed banks when Expedia made its beds available to other OTAs, booking matched that. They did that with flights. When Expedia provided flights in Europe, booking matched that. And the way they matched that was interesting because they entered into a revenue share agreement with a company called eTraveli. Uh, and uh, just as a note, uh, booking is currently trying to acquire eTraveli and, and that's going through a regulatory review. Uh, Expedia is also providing dynamic packages in Europe. And, and so what booking is doing is that they're, they're matching what Expedia is providing through last minute. And so, you know, eTraveli and, and, and last minute effectively were the strategic pawns for booking. Um, you know, they, they can focus on a whole lot of other areas, but they know that at least from a competitive perspective, um, they've got sort of a match against Expedia via their strategic pawns. Um, the second thing is that, you know, when booking looks at results and they do a lot of A-B testing and something that booking is very uh, well known for, they will check to see whether customers that are, you know, selecting a flight plus a hotel on their site, whether they're getting better results with just bookings inventory or better results with last minute's inventory. And remember, last minute has all these exclusive rates sitting in their inventory. And the net net is, you know, bookings customers are getting better um, rates 
uh, with last minute's inventory. And you can see that in attach rates, um, you know, their likelihood of you know, completing the, the transaction. So it's a win-win. And finally, what Booking's very good, good at is, uh, you know, they'll, they'll have these strategic partnerships where they can kind of try before you buy uh, effectively. And, and what you have is, is you have partners that are completely integrated already. And so when you buy some of these companies or you're buying them out, it's effectively just CapEx. Um, in this business, think of, you know, fixed costs and, and you know, development costs as maintenance CapEx. And when you buy acquisitions, it, it's effectively just CapEx. You're just kind of just plugging in uh, something that would, would take you sort of a while to build. Uh, and the synergies that you can expect are pretty massive. Uh, next slide. So this is a, a survey from Expedia and, and these numbers came out sort of last week. All this tells you is that if you look at sort of customers, what they want is they want something that's cheap. They want, you know, low pricing and they want a deal. Uh, what I'd focus you on is that if you look at sort of what the most appealing deals are to customers when they book, sure, you want sort of the free check bag and free checking and, and, and free parking. You also want kind of a discount, but Look at the third item there. They want uh, a discount if they book a package. And in Europe, um, you know, th there is a history of selling packages because, you know, Thomas Cook had uh, sort of a, a legacy business where they were selling packages in, in the UK and, and Germany for a while. So the, the package piece of it is, is certainly kind of very compelling. Uh, next slide. Um, so I'll just say a couple of things about sort of the, the investigation. Uh, the Swiss government uh, uh, a couple of months ago and, and a local prosecutor came claimed that the company was pretty much bilking um, uh, the Swiss government of, uh, of, of COVID benefits. The way the system worked in, in Switzerland is that, you know, a, a company could make a claim uh, for every hour an employee didn't work. Uh, the net net here is that the company is kind of full reserved the the amount that the Swiss government feels that they've been built of, which is everything. And in my evaluation, I've kind of adjusted for this amount. But I also wanted to kind of give you a little bit of perspective. When all of this was going on, you know, this is a slide from sort of early 2020. Um, you know, the, the company was in sort of a, a, a crucible, if you will. Um, they were fixated on just, uh, you know, saving as much cash as they could. Um, their customer demands were very, very high. Um, and as you can imagine, the entire customer service organization had to pretty much be reversed from taking a booking to kind of reimbursing a customer. And they had to do everything very, very quickly. So if in that spirit, you know, you didn't kind of uh, specifically, um, you know, manage every hour that was, uh, that was kind of salvaged, you know, it's kind of understandable. I, I think, I suspect what might have happened is that initially, um, you know, they may have gotten a little overwhelmed. And, and then once they started getting sort of the proceeds from the Swiss government, they just let the ball continue rolling. I'm not saying that's, uh, that's, that's, that's right, but that's just one explanation of what might have happened. Uh, next slide. So let's just talk about valuation very quickly. And, and let's look at it sort of three ways. The easiest way to look at it is, you know, if you look at, um, if you try, uh, to comp it against um, sort of other companies out there like E-Dreams, On the Beach, and Twi. Well, each one of these comparables are effectively different businesses. You can see that 
based on um, you know where they spend capital and where they're looking for scale. Uh, eDreams is moving to you know customer long uh, lifetime value KPIs. Tui and and Jet, I mean, are capital intensive. They own planes and they own uh, hotels. But you can, as a proxy, just look at comparison versus kind of the stock uh, European Airlines Index from the beginning of this year. And, um, you know, last minute is down uh, relative to stocks about 27%. So that's kind of, you know, there's 36% of upside if it was just to you know, rebase the stock. Um, from a valuation perspective, I, I, I think the, the thing that's tricky is that it's not like the multiples right now are excessively expensive relative to where it was trading, you know, with a 4.25 EV bathymetric or a 13% cash flow yield. But what's important here is, is as an analyst, you have to try and forecast kind of what the growth in dynamic packages is going to look like, um, because that's going to translate into operating leverage. You're going to have more revenue. Uh, and your variable costs are going to kind of come down. And that's where you're really going to see kind of, um, you know, the scale in the model and the numbers, both uh, revenue and margins are going to reflect that. Um, the last thing I'd mention is just brand value. Uh, so, uh, you know, at the bottom of that Excel spreadsheet, I just give you a sense of kind of some of the brands that last minute kind of holds. I just wanted to give you kind of, uh, a few data points. The last minute brand itself, um, you know, um, this company bought last minute from Sabre uh, for roughly around 123 million euros. But last minute, Sabre bought last minute from uh, Travelocity in 2005 for about a billion um, in dollars. And uh, Travelocity had been advertising last minute aggressively kind of for the last four or five years and before that in, in sort of, you know, the UK and, and London. Those brands are worth quite a bit. The WEG brand that you see here that, you know, the company paid roughly 12 million for, well, it's now generating 68 uh, million euros in revs. The, uh, some of these brands are understated and, and brands basically, you know, bring customers in direct and you're not paying for Google and, 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 and search costs. Um, they're worth quite a bit. Um, last minute spending 12 million this year on brand marketing uh, in the, with the London Eye and the Tour de France. So these brands are being invested in. So they're certainly worth something. Uh, in, in, in my view, they're worth more than the 125 million that are marked on the balance sheet, materially more. Uh, last slide. So, um, you know, at a, at a very high level, uh, on the opportunity side, I, I'd say that, you know, the booking relationship is growing. Um, and if you do see normalization, you'll see um, sort of the underlying um, product driver that dynamic packages create, um, you know, it'll be a lot more apparent. Uh, the risk on the flip side, again, is, you know, things that most people worry about, which is kind of if there's a European travel uh, recession, you get negative operating leverage. And, and, and what that'll likely do, at least in my view, is it'll delay the thesis. Um, but that's certainly sort of a concern. Um, there's lots of other opportunities and risks, but, you know, I'm glad to answer those as questions. And that's it. Uh, thank you, Ruka, for the... Uh... Yeah. For the uh, presentation, I think it's very comprehensive. Uh, I just want to uh, state that I own some shares of lastminute.com also, uh, just for the record. I do have a few questions, and I think the, the first sure. question uh, revolves around the, the legal issues. And I think it's 
uh, important to create a distinction between the, the the legal issues facing the previous CEO and CEO COO, which were formerly under house arrest, and the company itself. So, for the purposes of investors, uh, what is LastMinute.com potentially on the hook for? Just to be clear. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the most relevant question here, and and, and it's a fair one. Uh, the company has very specifically said that they are not parties to the investigation being currently conducted by uh, either the criminal prosecutor in, in Italy uh, or uh, the Swiss government. Uh, and there's very little precedent here um, because, um, you know, COVID uh, benefits were recently doled out and, and this is probably a precedent setting case. But all the, the the company itself and and council as well have suggested that if anything, um, the liability rests with the CEO and the CEO who perhaps made some of those decisions. The most the company is liable for is the monies that they took, and the company has already reserved for that and will be paying that back. So, from an investigation perspective, I think with the monies reserved for um, the issue is largely behind us. Okay, let's also talk a little bit about the uh, the about its relationship with Booking.com because it's uh, certainly uh, Booking.com is a large customer, but also a a potential buyer of uh, of, of LastMinute.com. However, I think there are possible antitrust concerns. You 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 mentioned them a little bit in your presentation, and also the yeah. the former uh, uh, sort of management is also a large, still a large owner of the company. So how do you how do you do you see uh, lastminute.com being sold in the next year or two years or 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 what do you if you, you know the, first, you know, the look at the wall? Yeah, the time frame. I, I think that um, a lot of investors in last minute were in the company with the expectation that booking is going to take them out, that booking is going to take them out in a year or two years or the like. Um, I think that was a little bit of putting the cart, you know, in front of the horse. I think that booking is, um, their acquisition strategy is actually quite systematic. Right now, they are a effectively a monopoly hotel player in Europe. Um, to, uh, to sort of take the next step uh, to achieve a, a, a connected trip, which is what, you know, um, uh, Glenn Fogel has been pushing. Um, they first had to get a flights product um, sort of into the mix. If you go to a booking website in Europe and, and you're looking to book, you'll notice that you see a, fl a flights tab, you'll see a flights plus a hotel tab, and, and then you have sort of the hotel functionality, and then you have, um, you know, kind of uh, vacation stays. The flights tab is functionality provided by a company called Itravelli. Uh, that was, again, private equity owned booking. Um, uh, signed uh, an acquisition agreement to acquire them uh, last November. It's still undergoing sort of a regulatory review. It's going to be an interesting review to see because booking has no presence in flights. So it's going to be a function of how the European regulator defines the market. Um, it's going through phase two. And, and if that review is successful for booking, then I suspect uh, last minute becomes the next logical bolt-on. But when that happens or how that happens is, is hard to tell because it's going to take them a while to integrate flights, um, six months, a year, two years. 
And while all of that is happening, last minute is still their strategic pawn. They're going into all of these other countries. Um, booking isn't falling behind strategically. So there isn't an urgency per se to, you know, get them off the market. However, Glenn Fogel is as, as astute uh, a, a deployer of capitalists as anyone in this industry. If you have the choice of building everything in-house versus buying someone um, for a materially lower dollar point or, or euro point, materially lower, and they're already completely strategically integrated, it's a no-brainer decision. Uh, and you know that, uh, you know, the current CEO, this was the last part of your question, um, you know, who's a large shareholder, um, you know, his incentives, by the way, are just to get maximum price. I mean, he's not going to be, uh, you know, he has no interest in throwing a wrench in. I believe his view was always that, you know, Booking will be your eventual acquirer. Uh, he himself felt that, you know, he was going to issue options uh, to all of his staff at 60, struck at 60, because his view was that Booking would pay, you know, materially more than 60 for this company, given what the profit profile is. Um, I think that that's still sort of a, a reasonable likelihood. But my view is that even if the booking piece of it doesn't happen, the asset is very attractive to private equity, um, you know, because you're generating cash. Um, it's easy to roll uh, to roll up as you go into some different countries and you have a strategic exit in sort of a booking or another company sort of down the line. Okay, Lucan, I think we have to leave it there. Uh, if people want to reach out to you with uh, additional questions or, or just to, to, yeah. to connect with you, what's, what's the best way to reach and get to you? My email is best. Um, it's rukun, R-U-K-U-N dot dougal, D-U-G-G-A-L at uh, chandern, C-H-A-N-D-E-R-N dot com. And uh, thank you, Jason. And uh, uh, this has been fun. Thanks, Bobby. Thank you. All right. Well, that that about does it for Team Europe, the stock pitches for the Stock Pitch World Cup. That was a lot of fun. Jason, thank you again for, for moderating all this. Thank you to all our investors uh, for, for pitching uh, the, their respective companies. Jason, you, you got some final words? No, it was a lot of fun. Thank you very much, Bobby, for uh, for having me and having the uh, three other great guys uh, present some fantastic companies. I hope everybody's enjoyed it. Uh, and go Team Europe. Very good. Thank you, Jason. This presentation is a service of SNN Inc. or an affiliate thereof, collectively SNN, and all information presented is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending any securities, nor is this an offer or sale of any security. Neither SNN nor its representatives are licensed brokers, broker-dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, or with any state securities regulatory authority. SNM provides no assurances as to the accuracy or completeness of the information presented, including information regarding any specific company's plans or its ability to effectuate any plan and possess no actual knowledge of any specific company's operations, capabilities, intent, resources, or experience. Any opinions expressed in this presentation are solely attributed to each individual asserting the same and do not reflect the opinion of SNN. Individuals who appear in this presentation presentation may have a financial stake, stock ownership, or otherwise in the company or companies presented. Information contained in this presentation may contain 
forward-looking statements as defined under Section 27A of the Securities Act of 1933 and Section 21B of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. Forward-looking statements are based upon expectations, estimates, and projections at the time the statements are made and involve risks and uncertainties that could cause actual events to differ materially from those anticipated. Therefore, viewers are cautioned against placing any undue reliance upon any forward-looking statement that may be found in this and any SNN presentation. SNN does not engage in providing advice, making recommendations, issuing reports, or furnishing analysis on any of the company's security strategies or information presented. SNN recommends you consult a licensed investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this or any SNN presentation. Furthermore, it is encouraged that you invest carefully and consult investment-related information available on the websites of the SEC at www.sec.gov and the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, FINRA, at finra, F-I-N-R-A, dot org.